Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, Easter message this morning, hopefully you have your sheet out, how shall we then live? Mark, uh, Dr. Miniam read the uh, narrative account of the uh, Matthew 28, and, and uh, what a great account that is, and uh, Paul moves into in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, dealing with the uh, church at Corinth, believers there that knew better, that knew of the gospel, and knew of their standing in Christ, and knew of the of the fact of the resurrection of Jesus, and yet we're allowing themselves to be polluted with the false isms of that day. In other words, the ism is the body is evil, the spirit is good, death is good because it separates the two, and the body shall be no more. That was a common philosophy uh, of that day. And the Corinthian believers who knew better were starting to entertain that pagan thought. And Paul, writing this first epistle to the Corinthians, among other things, writes to correct them. Listen, this is not optional. We're not ordering pizza here, and you want anchovies or pepperoni or mushroom. It's not that way. It, it is an, an absolute non-negotiable. You see, think about it. Uh, he said to the Corinthians in chapter 15, if there's no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. If he's not raised... You are of all men most miserable. You are without hope. You are still in your sin. And he lays out that whole false thought there. And then as he moves towards the end of that chapter, and look at 1 Corinthians 15, I want to, uh, us to look at verse 51 and following. He gets very specific to the church and he ends with a very strong application, and that, uh, verse 58, is our text for today. But look at 51. Uh, he says to the Corinthian believers and to us 20 centuries later, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. It means that we all won't die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying is written will come true. Here it is. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is, verse 58. How shall we then live? Verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor, your work in the Lord is not in vain. There it is. Well, living in a fallen world certainly means that you and I will have enemies. 
we will have enemies. It happens. The Bible tells us that, uh, that there are three great enemies. Even if we are nice people, we have enemies. Say, I smile a lot. I wave. I'm happy. I talk to people. I encourage them. It doesn't matter. You will have enemies, and all of us have these three greatest of all enemies. They are, and I have it on your sheet, sin, Satan, and death. But the good news is, is that when Jesus died on the cross as our sin substitute, and as he was raised for our justification, as Paul says in Romans, he defeated all three. They're defeated. They're defeated. The power of sin, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the power of sin has been broken in your life. You still have the residue. You still have sin in your life, as I do. We're growing in grace, but it has been defeated and will finally be removed forever. You and I will be separated from the presence of sin. Won't that be great? We get to heaven, the the millennial kingdom on earth, And you'll see me, and you won't even recognize me. And I the same with you. No sin. And certainly at the cross and the resurrection, not only sin, but Satan uh, was utterly defeated. There, There he thought he was triumphing over the Son of God. And he received in that, according to Genesis 3.15, the head wound, the mortal wound. And he was utterly defeated at the cross. And finally, death. Don't you love that? You stand at the graveside with tears streaming down your cheek and burying a loved one, whether young or older, and saying so long for the last time here on earth to know that you have a living hope. I'm telling you, it is. it makes it all worthwhile. It makes all the difference. I have preached many, many funerals in my life. And I have preached under the eyes of blank stares and utter hopelessness of those that did not know the Savior, those that that had no hope of the resurrection. I talked to a woman on Friday, and she told me uh, her mother of, of someone who I had known, someone who had been in a former church, had died last fall in October, and I didn't know that. I'd been over in Cutter in October, and uh, I was at her store, and she began to cry and as she thought about her mama and not seeing her mama anymore, and I tried to uh, give her assurance what a sweetheart her dear mama was. I remember her so well. And then I said to her that uh, this being the first Easter Sunday, that uh, it has to have a very, very, very special meaning for you. And she hardly gave me a look hardly gave me a smile. And I thought to myself, I don't think that she has the hope of a Savior who's risen in her heart. I'll tell you, that's the world in which we live in. And most people don't have that. And death is seen as a great awful thing with no no chance of victory. I'm here to say that the cross and the grave has provided us victory. We are victors because Christ was uh, the great victor. Now, it was God's victory. It wasn't ours, but it was a victory in which all of us as Christians are graciously allowed to share. He shares that. 
Some of you are Pittsburgh Steelers fans, and you talk about, we scored and we won, like you're on the team, right? I know you're wearing a jersey, but don't step out onto the field, you know? We are winners, victorious, right? You didn't help at all. You say, well, I prayed. Well, I don't know if God hears those prayers. I've prayed for the Bills for years. It seems to not have much effect, you know? They're victorious world champions. There's something far greater than that. Victory over death. Victory over the grave because of our risen Savior. And he shares that victory with us. Well, Paul concludes this resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, by exhorting us if we really believe in our Savior and we are really grateful that our resurrection is for sure you and I, as believers, should prove it by the way we conduct our lives. That's what he's going to say and answer the question, how shall we then live? Well, verse 58 provides two responses, proving our gratitude and assurance in sharing in this coming resurrection that is yours and is mine as believers in Jesus Christ. For remember, the day is coming when those who have died in Christ will be raised from their graves. It is the ultimate makeover. You ever watch that show? They take these old rickety houses, they need a good stick of dynamite, just blow the thing up, right? It's amazing how they take that and redo the whole thing, add a big addition on, blah, 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 right? You wait and see what God has in mind for your body and yours. And you say, wow, the ultimate makeover, the bodily resurrection. Why do we say bodily? Because there are those that would stand in pulpits and write books that talk about the resurrection of Jesus as if it's some sort of ideal, some sort of philosophical thing, mystical thing, wonder, but nothing, meaning that his actual body came back to life, and so we've had to, uh, like an appendage, put it on it. It's the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ without a shame. And if it didn't happen, listen, I'm not one of these optimist guys that say, well, let's just keep believing our beliefs and so on and so forth. Maybe they didn't really happen. Listen. If it didn't happen, I would tell you, throw your Bible in the trash. It's not worth the pages, the poor trees that were cut down to make the paper and the ink to make your Bible. If there is no resurrection of the dead, if Christ is not raised, don't come back here. Don't join me here next week. I won't be here. I won't. I'll stay home and read the paper, drink coffee, and eat I don't know what I'll eat. Eat something and, uh, you know, watch Meet the Press or some other insignificant thing, right? If there's no resurrection, if Christ is not raised. It makes all the difference. It is the pinnacle of truth. It is the cornerstone. It is the chief jewel. It's the crown jewel of all Christian theology. He rose from the dead. And someday, because of that, if you know Christ the Lord as your Savior, you will be raised in the resurrection that leads to life. Now, if the Lord comes back before, joy of joy, you will go without dying. Paul writes of that, 1 Thessalonians 4. When Christ comes and calls us from the air, the dead in Christ will rise first. 
There'll be many, many bodies. They'll be joined with their souls that will come with the Lord from heaven, joined in the air. Then we who are alive and remain, Paul said, there's going to be believers on earth at the day in which the Lord comes. Well, what's that day like? Well, Jesus told us in Matthew 24, in that day, people will be conducting life as usual, be marrying and giving in marriage. They'll be working. There'll be all these things going on. It'll seem like a normal day. And that'll be the day like no other day in which Christ will come, and the resurrection of the regenerate, the godly seed. And I'll be a part of that. So will you if you know Christ. Well, the sermon is real simple this morning. I like simple ones because I can tend to understand those, all right? As we read verse 57, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your work or labor in the Lord is not in vain. Here it is. He's telling us two things, two responses to the, to the resurrection of Christ, to the resurrection that you will share in as a believer in Christ, is simply this. Don't move. And the second, move. Move out. Well, that's real simple. What did he say today? He said, don't move. My father used to say that to me all the time. When I was a young kid, I was moving all over the place. I'd be sitting there just tapping away on that. Who's tapping? I'm not tapping. Who's tapping? Don't move. Sit still. In fact, sit on your hands. Your hands get you in trouble, Dad used to tell me. Don't move. That's what Paul's saying. In view of all this, the therefore in some of the whole chapter, don't be moved. And then the second part of the verse, move out. Now, it sounds like he's saying two different things. So let's find out what he's talking about. Roman numeral one, the first response, don't move. You and I are to be immovable in our doctrinal convictions. Don't move. Be settled. Paul concludes with a therefore summing up and reviewing the entire chapter. He tells the Corinthian believers and us by 20 centuries later, based on the reality of the resurrection, be settled. Be settled in your biblical convictions. It's not open to further information. Have you ever read the end of your Bible? Don't, you don't want to add to the Bible, and you certainly don't want to take away. Say, let's do a cut and paste here. You do that with your computer. Don't do it with your Bible. There is a curse that is pronounced upon those who add to the book, and there's a curse that's pronounced upon those that cut away and take away. There's no new doctrine coming. We have everything in the Scriptures that we need for life and godliness. So be settled in it. Be settled. Be immovable in your biblical convictions. He tells us in the NIV, stand firm. That's not bad. King James is the way I originally memorized this verse. Be steadfast. Remember that? Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And be steadfast. Literally, it means to be seated. Be seated, to be firmly situated. Don't get up. Now, one thing I love about Sunday afternoons during football season, Faithy will make, we'll get something to eat, and then I'll go down it and, and try and catch the bills on, uh, on, on the tube, and I get settled into one of those lazy boys. You ever have one of those? I never knew how good they were. They're pretty good. Yeah, they are. And I watch for about a, a quarter and a half before. And it won't be too long because there's not too much to stay awake for. I doze off, 
and I'm immovable. I'm sitting in that red leather, lazy boy, and uh, happy as can be, usually exhausted because I, the whole focal point of me uh, for my week is uh, should be for you, Sunday morning worship, uh, and I wait and yearn and pray for and up very early and ready for, and so Sunday afternoon, after perhaps one of Faithy's great meal, I am, I am out. I am settled in for a good hour Sunday after Lord's Day nap. Doesn't that sound great? Don't go to sleep now, but be settled in. That's the idea. It came right to my mind to be settled in. And that's what he's saying. We ought to be seated. We ought to be firmly situated. Don't get up in our doctrinal convictions. Settle in there. Rest there. Furthermore, to add more intensity, he tells them, uh, don't let nothing move you in the NIV or be immovable. This means that we're to be totally immobile and motionless. Immobile in our doctrinal convictions. Don't move. You've been taught well. Stay there. Embrace it. Don't embellish it. Know what the truth is. Be immobile. Now, one thing, when you go to some parts of the world, as uh, I saw in the Middle East last fall, I was reminded again, and it's very different from the States with our, with our cell phone. My cell phone finally broke the other day. I made some calls, and I could hear, but they couldn't hear me. And uh, to get it repaired was too much, so I find, boop, pitched that and found something else and had to get a new one. And so the, the cell phone, don't we love that? Everyone has that, uses that, and all that kind of thing. In parts of the world, they don't call it a cell phone. And uh, when, I, when I landed in Doha, they gave me a mobile. Uh, I said, mobile? Yeah, it's a mobile. A mo- a mo- mobile. That's not Alabama. Mobile. Where's your mobile? I said, pardon me? Do you have a mobile? They call a cell phone a mobile. Isn't that funny? But you think about it, it's uh, when you and I are on the move and we're wandering around and we can talk. We're not stuck to a landline with a direct cord. It's a mobile. Get your mobile out, not cell phone. Well, this is the opposite. It's to be immobile in your doctoral conviction. Don't wander around. Know the truth. It's enough here for us to give our whole lives to knowing it. Paul is telling us, be uh, those of us who have the assurance of the resurrection that we are to have a firm and unchangeable grasp upon this truth of the resurrection of Christ and how it plays into our life as we shall follow him in the same resurrection. The Corinthian believers had been taught doctrinal truth, but were toying with moving on to other ways of thinking. They were easily moved, we know by reading this book, both in their, in their conduct, their behavior, and in their conviction. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Be firmly established. Don't be wandering around in pagan philosophy, things that you knew before you were saved. That is, the body is evil and will not be resurrected. In 1 Corinthians 15, do we have that down? You can just flip back one page. Look at verse 1. Paul had instructed these dear believers. They had received the truth. Verse 1, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I I preached to you, and you received, and on which you have taken your stand. You see, they were taught well by Paul when he was with them. 
But then, if you will, look at verse 12. They began to, some of them, meander away. They were becoming mobile in their biblical convictions. Don't you do it, he's saying. But look at verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And on he, he works through that logically. They had been taught well, they began well, but they began to meander away. And he's saying as a result of the resurrection of Jesus, listen, here's the first response, be, be immobile in your convictions. Know what the Bible says and plant yourself firmly. Be settled there, immobile, steadfast. Well, we are to be firm and fixed in our convictions so that we're not like little children. Look at uh, Ephesians 4. Paul writes and tells us uh, in Ephesians 4, verse 14. Um, uh, I think, do we have that on the screen? Look at Ephesians 4, 14. Then we will no longer be infants, children, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. It blows all over the place. And by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. There are all sorts of isms and ideas that float around. Just read the paper, listen to current events. It's crazy. Know the truth. Be like a bank teller. Study the genuine uh, bill. Know the 20s and the 50s and the 100s and, and, there, and, and, and know those. Give yourself to knowing that. You don't have to study all the, the, the phonies and the fakes. Just know the real thing and know it inside and out. So then when you, someone slips you a false ism, you go like, whoa, that feels funny. Oh, that doesn't look right. Oh, that's phony, phony money. That's phony ism. That's not the truth. Give yourself to the truth. There are some, you know, that, that study even Satan and study all demonology and all. I've never given myself to a lot of that. I uh, for a lot of reasons. I don't want to open myself up to a lot of that stuff. He is real. He is the great deceiver. He's an angel of light, disguises himself. He's a deceiver of the brethren. He's the accuser. He has a demonic force with him. But I never wanted to major on all of that. Some do that, and I think they open themselves to certain temptations and exposure. I want to give myself to the study of the truth and the things that are right, chiefly to the study of Christ and his gospel. That's what I want to give myself to. And to know that backwards and forwards, to be able to explain it in simple words. You know, that's the height of a genius. Anybody can learn 50-cent words and lose anybody, and, you know, he's educated or she's really educated, you know. And you have more clueless as to what they're saying. You know, the height of a real genius is that he or she knows it backwards and forwards, in and out, and can explain great concepts in simple terms that even the youngest of children can, can, can come to know. That's the mark of a genius. How about the Lord Jesus? Nobody ever taught as he did. I mean, would you say he was the most brilliant to ever live? I would say. Would he get a perfect on his SATs, ACT, I think? You know, the Lord never said, I didn't know. He knew everything, right? And listen to him teach. Watch him preach. They understood it, even a child. They said, no one ever taught like this one. That's the Lord Jesus, the glorious one. 
Don't be moved away from God's will and from his word. Be settled. So many are inwardly unstable in their thinking. And don't be enamored with what's new. Now, I know we always say that, don't we? We meet someone and say, hey, what's new? You know, kind of like, hey, what's, I got this new job. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's real good news today, right? Or this or that, got a new grandchild, my wife's expecting, or this or, you know what I mean. What's new? We like that. We like to hear what's happening. But when we're talking about the scriptures and the doctrinal truths, the non-negotiables, that expression, that question is out of bounds. You're off the field. Don't be saying, what's new in theology? It's the old, old story. The challenge is, is to tell it in a new and a fresh way. For every generation must be one to the gospel of Christ. And this is our day. And so for us to say, what's new in the realm of theology? There's nothing new. Listen to the words of Solomon. Remember our study in Ecclesiastes. All right, so that's out. Give yourself to knowing truth. Well, see, what are some, what are some other foundation? What are some of the foundational non-negotiable truths that you and I as believers must firmly fix, be fixed upon, be settled in, be immovable in, insofar as the doctrinal foundation of the word. In other words, don't move. This is not uh, exhaustive, but here are some of them that just came to mind. The inspiration of the Bible. Look what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. That means all of the Bible in its original. And it's useful, therefore, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Uh, it, uh, it is the Word of God. The Bible is all important. God reveals himself in the big book called Creation. And we can learn certain things about God and as we look at the stars and the sky and the, and the beauty of creation, the order and the form, and it's really there. It's, it's not a mirage. The beauty of it, the closer you look at what God has done, the more amazed you will be at the single cell, and there are millions and millions of them in your body, to the outer space and the vastness of it, the innumerable stars, You'll go like, wow, what a God. That's the big book. The small book is our Bible. And we have, in our English language, uh, copies of it, uh, translated and carefully done so that we can have the very Word of God in our lives. What a great treasure. It's greater than all the gold in Fort Knox, if they keep it there anymore. It is the Word of God. It, uh, it points of things that we really need to know, the Savior, number one, and for all things that relate to life and godliness, our purpose and place and activity of what we're to be doing here and now. The inspiration of the Bible. Quickly, the divinity of Jesus. He's not just a man. Jesus Christ, superstar, was uh, filled with air. Uh, Mary, man, and he—he's just a man. He's just—he was all man. He was a hundred percent man, but he was the God man. That miraculous incarnation of God in man, Emmanuel. John one one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's an equation. God in the Word are one and the same. How about three, the substitutionary death of Jesus? 
He was made sin for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, that's Jesus, who, who knew or had no sin to be sin, legal sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The substitutionary death of Jesus is a non-negotiable, fundamental. Don't move off that. It's essential. All is lost with that. You see, these are major non-negotiable building foundation stones of the Christian faith. How about four? We've been talking today. The bodily resurrection of Jesus. Matthew 28, 6. He is not here. He's risen, just as he said. It's foundational. If he's still in a tomb, if he never rose, all is lost. There is no hope. And we are of all men most miserable. Number five, the need for people to be born again and saved from their sin. People are not born okay. You're okay, I'm okay. And that psycho babble nonsense that floats around. You're not okay. You're not born good. Your mother knows that, and so do you. We are born in sin. In due time, we sin. Sinners sin. That's what we do. And for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. People need to be born again. Jesus said it in John 3, 7. Should you not be surprised by me saying you must be born again? Remember that, Jesus to Nicodemus? It's essential. It's the greatest thing that, that, uh, that can happen in your life, far greater than finishing school and finding your career path having children or grandchildren, as great as these things are, the greatest thing is to be found by the Savior and to be born again. You must. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you must, you must be born again. A simple prayer of faith, Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I receive you as my Lord and as my God. Thank you for dying in my place and paying the price for my sin. I receive you as my Lord. That will save you if you mean it with all your heart. And so the need to be born again. And, and then one more, six, the second coming of Jesus for us. This is our resurrection day. If we should uh, die before he comes in John 14, this wonderful upper room passage, verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus said, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That's in heaven. Wow. Just a few. There are a few others that we could mention, but that suffice. Paul is saying, listen, don't move. Stop moving around. You know the truth. Be settled in it. Be men and women of deep conviction. Those are the kind of people that God can use to be influencers and salt and light to others. There's a theology out today called open theism that kind of throws open the door and the, the wonder of God, and God's waiting to find out what's going to happen in the future. It's unbiblical. It's settled. It's certain because God is sovereign, and history is his story. And in the date of this crucifixion and the resurrection, we're firmly fixed and came about, and we stand on this side of it. Be settled in your conviction. Grow up. Don't be like children. Have you ever noticed how silly children are? They believe in big, fat men with red suits and reindeers. They do. They even put out cookies, you know, peanut butter cookies and warm milk because he's coming down 
the chimney that they don't have. Yeah, I mean, you, I, I took close inspection of our chimney when I was a kid, and that flue was only this big. I could not quite figure out the logistics of that when I was just a little boy. Uh, but my parents said it happened, so, you know, it must happen, and because the next day I got presents. The big thing came when I was starting to figure out this thing's a hoax, that uh, if I fess up, does that mean we don't get presents anymore? How long do we keep the gig going here, you know? <laughs> Kids believe that. They're tossed all around like that, and they believe that kind of, the tooth fairy. I used to lose teeth, Mark, and I got a quarter every time. Worked out good, you know? Did anyone else do that? You get quarters? What do they give today? What's the going rate for a tooth? They bought tooth fairies. Huh? Uh, it's a dollar a tooth now? Yeah? Tooth fairy. Like someone's going to come in my room. Like I've been afraid of that all night, and they're telling me someone's coming in putting someone under my pillow. That's where I, the kids believe that kind of stuff, you know? Quit being children in your doctrinal conviction. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, he actually came forth on that Sunday morning, and because of that, it's the guarantee that you too will be firm and settled, immovable in your convictions. Wow. That's how we should live. Men and women of conviction, grow up. Come to know what it says and stand there. Stand. Take your stand. Well, he doesn't leave us. He closes the, uh, the, this verse 58 with a second response proving our gratitude and assurance. And that is he calls us to action. Move out! Move! And some things be immovable, and other things move out. How's that, Paul? Well, we must serve the Lord with all of our days doing his work. Move! Paul tells us that we are to always give ourselves fully. That's NIV. Always give ourselves fully. King James, abounding, what? In the, wor- in the Lord's work. The work of the Lord. What's that mean? Well, it's a tireless diligence. It means to exceed the requirements, to overdo it. In a number of years I taught as an associate professor in college and then in graduate school, and uh, the first day you go over the syllabus, give the requirements out, and uh, tell them what they have to read and the exams and the dates and the attendance requirements and papers and all that good stuff, right? And so a lot of you have been there. You go, like, that first, that first week you want to quit because you're just, like, buried with, like, five classes and all the requirements and, well, I'll never finish this, you know, I can't do it and all that. And uh, it, it was always disheartening when, uh, it was always encouraging when a student would come up and say, well, what do I have to do to, to earn an A? I never give out grades. You earn them. And I love that because, you know, they're going, for the t- they're going for the top shelf. But it's always disheartening when a student will, co- will wonder, well, what do I have to do to get a C? You know, like show up and do that. I say, look, you do, the, you, do the, you do these things on here, you get a C. You're only doing what I'm asking. If you want to do it with better than what I ask, you get a B. If you want to do it exceptionally, above what I ask, and you get an A. Uh, Teachers don't want to hear, what do I have to do to just skirt through this thing with a C, right? What he's saying here is we must move out. We must give ourselves. We must overdo it and exceed 
the requirements, not just skate in, floating on a twig down the creek as it takes us. And we're to do it always, always, he says. Don't you love that word? Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Now let's look at that word always because it helps us to understand whether we're young or old. Some people say, well, Pastor, I've, I've served the Lord this many years. Now I'm going to leave it for the next generation. I'm too old. And I'll say, well, are you still warm and breathing? Well, I think so. Let me do a body check, you know. You're still here. I think God has something for you to do, and it's not to sit on the bench. Don't take a lap. Don't head into the showers. Get on the field. There's something for you to do. If you're still here, if, if God was done with you, you'd be out of here. Believe me. Always, old and young, serve the Lord. Give yourself to the Lord's work. Move out, he's saying. Move out with a tireless diligence. Move out whether you're many, and we like to be in a crowd, right? Many God's people, mighty onward Christian soldiers, right? Or if you're all alone, it's just me and my lonesome. Serve the Lord. How? Always. Always. Serve the Lord. I love this, uh, uh, this quote here in B. Since God has so abundantly overdone himself for us, we who deserve nothing from, we should determine to overdo ourselves in service for him, to whom we owe everything. John MacArthur wrote that. Abounding. What a word. What a word for the thousands and thousands of Christians who work and pray and give and suffer as little as possible. Now, what a sad thing. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And for many who say, well, I name the name of Jesus. And hardly do a thing. They do the barest, the barest of minimal. And hardly serve God at all in their personal life, in their work life, and throughout all their days. And I say to you, what an, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. It's almost embarrassing, these words. Yet, it's a proper call for those of us who have the assurance of a future resurrection. And if we needed an illustration, how about Paul? Look at the Apostle Paul. He was the, the least of the apostles. He had hurt the church. He had killed Christians, had been a part of locking them up, and God wonderfully saved him. This, uh, this Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, and how did he live as a result of the risen Lord and his salvation? He lived all his days as a tent maker. He made tents to support himself, and he did the work of the ministry and gave his all. It reminds us of the great verse that he wrote, right? For me, living is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul illustrates that for us, doesn't he? Abounding in the work of the Lord. That's for us. And we ought to fill our days with serving Christ, Use the talents and gifts and abilities that God has given us. We serve the Lord here. Some of you have teaching abilities and organizing abilities and servant abilities, and, and you love the children. You rotate into the nursery, and some of you help clean up and organize and do social things. You have a, you have a burden for missions, and you work with the children, and, 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 and so many of us give of the first fruits of our, our incomes and increase, and all of that shows our, our serving the Lord here. But then we're only here a very small part of the week. 
It doesn't end when we walk out that door. Our service for Christ and the work of the Lord is really just beginning. This is kind of like the huddle. You know, we've been out serving. We could kind of get battered about, and life hits us hard, and there's discouragement. And, and so we teach the Word. It encourages us. The Spirit of God grows us up, helps us again to think rightly. We, we grow in our edification and being equipped for the work of ministry. And when we leave this place, we enter into a world to be salt and light. That's your work. There are people in your heart and life and neighborhood and family that wouldn't walk across the street to see me or talk to me or I'll never have an opportunity. But God has planted each one of you. Gifts and abilities and, and in your jobs and all of that. View that as ministry. All of it. It is the work of the Lord. Uh, we would revolutionize the work of Grace Church if we, each one of us, would embrace that thought wholeheartedly. Because of the resurrection, my life is the Lord's. I'm living for Him. There's some things I'm to be immovable. Doctrinal conviction. That's where I am. I cannot move. But in the other end, because of the resurrection, I'm to be moving all over the place, filling my life with action and activity in the work of the Lord. That's what Paul is saying. Point simple. John MacArthur also writes along that line. He said, our money, our time, our energy, our talents, our gifts, our bodies, our minds, our spirits should be invested in nothing that does not in some way contribute to the work of the Lord. He's exactly right. Exactly right. We are called, see, to the work of the Lord. It's, it is a work. It's a great work. It's a toil. The word toil, the old word toil, means that we, uh, we labor to the point of exhaustion and exertion and even tears. You see why I say it's almost an embarrassment for, for many Christians to hear of the resurrection, to read these words, because when they look at their life, they go like, what am I doing? That's the right question. Get into the game. It's going to be over pretty quick. And we'll give an account of ourselves. Going, going, and almost gone. That's your life, and that's mine. Well, it's the great work. It's not building the Eiffel Tower, some of the great bridges or stadiums or buildings or, or even in molecular science or any of the great works that we might think, space stations and all these things that are okay in their place. But it is the great work. It is the work of the Lord. It involves using our time and talents and treasure in reaching lost people and in building up the saints. That's discipleship. Move out, he's saying. Move out. It's the only work that endures, incidentally. Well, the motivation is given D for this great and strenuous work in our text, for he tells us, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In vain means fruitless. Your labor for the Lord will produce a productive life with much fruit. It is the, the Lord's own promise that if we so do it, our lives will be a success. And that's what I want. I remember early on thinking in my own life, and each one of us have a different path that God has designed. But the thought struck me way back, and God used that for the path and journey of my life. The thought, do I want to spend my life or do I want to invest my life? 
you spend your life, once you spend it, like having a certain amount of dollars, it's all over. It's all done when they're all gone. But if you, if you invest your life, there is a coming dividend. And that's the way I want to live. And that, uh, God used that thought very strongly in my life to turn away from a family business and all that. Good things in themselves, but for me, it, God had a different path. And I'm so grateful and so thankful. And I never look back at that. I could have stayed there. My father wanted to give me the business. My name was on the building uh, and all of that. But God had a different path, and he's filled me with joy and blessing it's been the sweetest of all things. And what a privilege to teach the Word of God and shepherd the flock of God. There's nothing greater and nothing greater for me to do that. It, uh, it is a privilege that I am not, uh, uh, I'm not worthy of that. You know, we are at best unworthy servants. He makes us worthy. But the joy and the privilege of rising early every day and to pray for you and pray for God's Word to find inroads in your heart and life and to get my own heart right and to study the Word so that I can preach it with deep conviction and with effectiveness for eternity's sake and to lead the flock of God. What a privilege. Oh, I thank the Lord for that so very, very much. Well, the certainty of a success. There are many things that we can do that are meaningless, right, and vain. Many things, and we do. We give ourselves to things that don't amount to anything. You only have so much time, you and I, and we'll fill up our lives with all sorts of things. Not bad things. The good and bad, they're the easy ones to figure out. It's uh, the, the good, better, and best, or the choice between two good things. What's the better? Those are the harder decisions. And you and I can fill up our days with things that are okay, but not the best. And when we get to the end of the road, we'll have nothing, nothing to show for it. Nothing. Such is the case of all Christians who give their life, like it's their life purpose, to make money. People do that, you know. Now, we have to have money. You live indoors. God blesses. We give to the Lord's work. And you know, money's not the bad thing. It's the love of money. But people live to make money. And their lives have been rocked if they invested in the market in recent months, right? Their God has crumbled to at least 40% of it, they say. Uh, live for money, live for honor, live for mere temporal things. And when they are all through working, their hands will be empty. Don't let this be you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus tells us as he closes the, his Bible in, in Revelation twenty two twelve by way of motivation, in Revelation twenty two twelve, look what he says. Behold, I am coming soon. And my reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done in the work of the Lord. Wow. Well, the reality of the future should color the presence of our day-to-day -day lives. Lessons for our life, number one. If you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let me urge you to do so today. You must be born again. He is the resurrection in the life. Many here have trusted Christ the Lord as Savior, but you must do as well. Not enough that your dad was saved or your mother, but you must be born again. If I can help you, pray with you, counsel you with God's open word, I'd love to do that. There are others here, men and women, who can help you with that. Don't let the day pass. Why, what a day to be saved, right? The resurrection Sunday morning. 
And you'll never forget it. And what day were you saved? I was saved Easter Sunday morning. Praise God. Number two, my way of lessons for life. If you are a believer, you must hold fast to the teachings of the Bible. Hold fast. Hold fast. God has not changed his mind. It's settled forever in heaven. But God be true and every man a liar. Satan will assault it. He began that way in the garden. Remember, assaulting the word of God. Has God really said, and you should stand there as a man or woman of deep conviction, yes, he has, yes, yea, and amen, forever it is settled and established. He has said. Thank you for that question, Satan. Sit down. Instead, Eve was open. Oh, maybe there's something here I don't know. And got us into a heap of trouble, right? She and her hubby. Don't move. There's some things you need to be immovable. Number three, if you are a Christian because of Jesus, you are a victor over sin, Satan, and death. Jesus was our victor, and he shares that with us. Sins, so should, as a believer, should no longer dominate you. And Satan, he is a defeated enemy in the grave. Well, that's been conquered through Jesus, his resurrection. Praise the Lord. You're on the victor's side, far greater than any national championship or the Phillies winning the World Series. Imagine that. Or others. We are victors in this thing called life because of our Savior. Number four and last, if you are a Christian, let me urge you to move out. Serve the Lord. Some of you are holding back. You're like the great, you're like a runner running around the track and four loops around. And you could do a whole lot more, but you're holding back because you want to finish strong. You know, and some just never break into an all-out, here I go, you know. They sort of just kind of trot across the finish line in last place or third place or fifth, but not breaking the tape, not letting it go. What are you waiting for? Be salt and light. This world needs you. God has saved you with a purpose in me to turn our area upside down, to be a blessing and a servant here, that we would share the Lord Jesus even this week, that we would give ourselves to the gospel, that we give ourselves to younger believers and spending time with them, small Bible studies, building them up in the truth of the word, that they might grow in maturity and be reproducers in this thing called the Christian life. How shall we then live? Be immovable. Don't move. Be settled in your convictions. But in your activity and actions in life, move out. Always abounding in the work of the Lord.